On December 4th of last year, that's 2017, over 400 musicians gathered at the 23rd Street Armory in Philadelphia to perform something called a symphony for a broken orchestra. And the orchestra included amateurs and professionals, even uh, members of the famed Philadelphia Orchestra. And many of us, we, we grew up in schools uh, where they taught music. Right? I, I, if I, if I wish all of you could meet Miss Carmelita Gandhi. She was my choral teacher from 6th to 8th grade. Uh, she's the one who took us to Carnegie Hall to sing in 8th grade. I mean, I think I took years off of her life, me running around New York. It was like Macaulay Culkin in Hummelin 2 uh, with me up in New York City uh, as an 8th grader. And um, we just had a, a, a blast up there. But she taught, I mean, week after week after week, taught me music. Uh, when I started in 6th grade, I was the second soprano. And when I left in eighth grade, I was a baritone, right? And, uh, and so she's the one who, who shepherded, me, shepherded me through that, that season of my life. And she uh, had patience. Uh, we saw the limits of that patience. I think I drove her there. And teachers, y'all know how that feels. Um, but uh, but when, when we were in school growing up, I mean, that was just part of the curriculum was music. And sadly, uh, it's not in so many places. And Philadelphia is one of those places. I was reading an article that said uh, in one year, the government funding went to $1 million, which was a low amount for the number of schools they've got, to $50,000 in one year. Talk about budget cuts, right? And that they had all of these instruments, over a thousand instruments that they found just in, in storage rooms all throughout the city that were broken and that they couldn't afford to have fixed. And so this person was kind of grieving music not being taught in schools and uh, got all of these or over 400 of these broken instruments together to do a symphony for a broken orchestra. And uh, there was a, a, a trumpet held together by blue painter's tape. There was a violin with no A string, a bow that had lost most of its hair, and a cello carried in multiple pieces. And, you know, you're probably thinking, Ryan is so sappy and you know, trying to spiritualize everything. And what he's going to tell us is that, you know, all of these broken instruments came together and the sound that came out of it is just beautiful. And I tried, and then I went and listened to footage of the symphony being played, and oh my goodness, it was horrible. I mean, it was awful. In fact, and you can't see it next week, you'd be able to, but uh, this is a picture of a little kid at the performance, and he has got both of his hands over his ears, and like, like, and it was, it was 40 minutes long, y'all. 40, it was not just like, come and let's hear a song, and okay, you know, it was a 40-minute long symphony. Go watch it on YouTube. It's awful. It's like a cacophony of chaos is the first thing that came to my mind. I mean, it's awful. And, and it was all for a purpose, though, right? It was all to raise money so that they could repair these instruments and get them in the hands of kids that could learn. So it was, it was a really good purpose, uh, even though it was awful. And as we open to Paul's first letter in the Corinthians, actually, that's a very accurate representation of what we find. A church that was meant to be unified around the gospel, but instead was a symphonic orchestra filled with loud gongs and clanging cymbals. Yet when Paul, what Paul saw was a people in which God wanted to work because he is the God who makes all things, get this, beautiful in its time. And we saw that from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We serve a God who makes all things beautiful in its time. And so this is the vision from which Paul operates to address this church. 
Now, I want to pause here and I want to emphasize something very crucial at the outset. What do you think Paul would have done if he had had the 21st century American spirit when it comes to church? And he had a church like this. What's the natural tendency of churches and church uh, membership in our day and age? If I don't like it, if it doesn't agree with me, if it doesn't meet my preferences, then I can just go to the one down the street that does. Right? I think it's important to emphasize here that Paul saw something in this church that made it worth fighting for. And I hope, I hope that that's why you're here too. That, that you see something as, as, as much as we struggle. That you see something here worth fighting for. Worth, worth, worth being here for. That, that, you, that you, you, don't, you, you don't come here, and, and maybe you do, but that I would challenge you to think about, is that, is that really why we should be here, to have our preferences met? And I, I would let you know that that's absolutely not why, why we, we're here. This is not, this, this, even this worship service and the songs that were chosen and, and the style of music that we sing and, and, and different things like that. Sure, we're caught up in the context of a, of a traditional South Alabama church with these beautiful stained glass windows and, and, and air conditioning, all these kind of wonderful things that we experience. But at the same time, we don't have those things just to make us comfortable. We don't come to a place that we call the church just so that we can be comfortable. We come here to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We come here to celebrate the promises of God. We come here to point to Him and say, He is what life is all about. And even if we didn't have these stained glass windows, even if if this building fell in on itself, that we could meet out in the parking lot and do the exact same thing. Could we do that? Could you do that? Would you show up for a service like that? So like some of the people in Florida had to do that Hurricane Michael destroyed their places of worship, but they said, that's not going to stop us. And they got in a parking deck and sang praises to God Almighty, to the God of the storm. I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would all, especially as we get into these, these epistles where Paul is addressing churches. We saw last week, Paul excited about what God was doing in a church and he was blessed by their hope. And what we're going to see this week is Paul says, I'm not going to give up on you. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But we're going to make it. We're going to make it. But how? That's that's the question for us that that we really need to see here. And what we're going to see is, especially, and this is is where it's crucial, we're going to study 1 Corinthians this morning, and tonight at 5, we're going to study 2 Corinthians. I really hope that you don't just come for one half of the picture. Because tonight in 2 Corinthians, you're going to see Paul responding to the repentance and faith of the, the Corinthian church. This morning, you're going to hear harsh words from Paul to try to correct some of the things that were wrong there. But then tonight, you're going to hear Paul speaking with a tone of restoration and hopefulness as he hears about what they had done in response. And so I hope you'll come back tonight at five for that. But what we're going to see is the beauty of gospel uh, confrontation this morning and the beauty of gospel repentance and restoration as we look at 2 Corinthians tonight. So let's begin as we have in, in times past and look at Paul's focus. And this is where I told you, if you can, flip over to Acts chapter 18. 
Actually, and, and if you want to, if you're going to stick around in 1 Corinthians, you write Acts 18 at the top above the title because it was in Acts 18 that the church in Corinth was established. Acts chapter 18, and we'll look at the first few verses here. You see, Corinth was an especially important city uh, because what it, what it had in there that made it such a, a cultural and religious melting pot were a few things. First of all, uh, it was this small strip of land that when the tides were right, you would see men who were out there and they would have these ropes attached to these large ships and they would be pulling those ships across something called an isthmus. I-S-T-H-M-U-S, isthmus. It's like one of the hardest words to say in the English language. Isthmus, right? And so uh, they actually had in Corinth, they had a forerunner to the Olympic Games called the Isthmian Games. And so when you hear Paul allude to metaphors uh, uh, using uh, images of sports and different things like that, then you'll know that's why he was doing that. <clears throat> but he approached Corinth on his second missionary journey after he left Athens. And <clears throat> look in verse 2. Of Acts 18, it says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he, want, and, he, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so Paul went to the synagogue, as was his practice, but he was rejected. And so he went from there to the Jews. And these Jewish people got saved. The leader of the synagogue got saved. Kind of this, 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 this awakening broke out around the synagogue. So it was this really amazing picture of the gospel that the Jews were rejecting it. But everybody around the synagogue, where the rejection had taken place, they were embracing it. And the church in Corinth was established. And Paul stayed there over a year and a half. And so when he, uh, he left there, going to establish other churches, as so often happened to Paul, false teachers came in and they began to question Paul's authority. They began to question his leadership. They began to, question, or to teach false doctrine. And so Paul hears, he gets this report, uh, and he hears that the Corinthian church has started walking away from the gospel. They started believing false doctrines. They started to believe some of the foolish accusations that had been made about Paul. And they had uh, gotten caught up in something that is so, uh, so often the case in churches. They got caught up in division. And that's why this letter has a very strong and corrective tone. Not because Paul wants them to be, you know, uh, I mean, because like we joked about them being Baptist churches. They weren't really Baptist churches. But not because Paul wants, to be this, wants them to be this exemplary church just for the sake of being an exemplary church. But Paul says, you are ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the watching world in Corinth. And this is how you're going to act? This is how you're going to act? And so Paul writes them this letter hoping that they will repent. Tonight we're going to see that they did, but not when they got this letter. 
But 1 Corinthians consists of these five sections where Paul confronts these specific issues of concern with the beliefs and practices of the people of Corinth. And basically, it's, uh, it's division, division, or well, I'm sorry, it's chapters 1 through 4, division, chapters 5 through 7, things you should have divided over, and then chapters 8 through 10, more division, and chapters 11 through 14, division about how worship should be done, and then chapter 15, something to hold on to in the midst of the division. That, so this church was caught up in, I hope you've heard it by now, division. <laughs> and so in each of these section though, sections, though, Paul has the same approach. And this is what is, if you could take anything away that would help you for the rest of your life, next time you open to the, to the book of 1 Corinthians, or next time you hear a pastor preach on 1 Corinthians, this is what you need to know about Paul's approach to all the issues they faced in Corinth. First of all, he addresses the problem directly. Secondly, he responds to the problem with some sort of story or part of the gospel. Then thirdly, he shows how they are not living out what they say they believe in light of the gospel. Look at, look at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Paul's goal. This is his starting point and his goal. Verse 17 of chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the what? The gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now let me just riff on this for a second, okay? What he's saying is, he's saying, I'm going to approach you on the only thing that matters in light of everything else that I'm going to say. You need to recognize that every one of your problems, every one of your situations, every one of the issues that I need to address with you are going to be addressed through the lens of the gospel because that's the only thing that matters. This good news about what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, this sets the tone for everything else, everything in your life you've got to look at through the lens of the gospel. And it's only as you look through the lens of the gospel, the corrective lens of the gospel, that you will see things clearly. That you will understand God's will for your life. And I hope that matters to you this morning. I hope it matters. I hope you want to know God's will for your life. I hope you want to know what God has to say about the, the situations that you've been facing, the things that, you've been, that have been weighing heavily on your mind that maybe you've not expressed to anybody else, the, the things that you know are happening in your life or are going to happen in your life that you wonder, well, God, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the point of this? Or, or how do I endure through this? Or how do I think about this? The gospel is the starting point, and here's why. For Paul, he had to painfully address things that were going on. He said, I know it's going to be painful, but eventually, because we see it in the cross of Jesus Christ, it's painful at first, but life flows as a result. And when the gospel, that, when that's where you begin in your life, it may be painful at first. But what will happen as a result? Resurrection, life will flow. Resurrection, life will flow flow when we start with the gospel when we start with the cross even though it's foolishness to the outside world when we start with the cross then it transforms everything when, when we apply the good news of the gospel to our situations life 
will flow. So much so that 1 Corinthians 10.31 shows us exactly what will be the result of us looking at life through the lens of the gospel. When we begin to live out the gospel in our lives, then we will do everything for the glory of God, even the most mundane things in life like eating and drinking. And so we want to understand how the gospel speaks into all these situations this morning. And the gospel does speak. So let's begin to work our way through the five sections. First of all, there's division in the church in chapters 1 through 4. Paul says basically it makes no sense to divide over human teachers. Some of you got saved under the ministry of Apollo. Some of you got saved under, the ministry of, uh, under my ministry. Some of you are just claiming that you got saved under Jesus. Does it make any sense to divide up into teams, theological teams, when you're in the church? We talked about this last week. We address the, the reality of Calvinism and Arminianism and different views of the end times in the church. Ultimately, when we divide over these kind of issues, then the gospel is, is marred in the eyes of the watching world. When we divide over trivial things like who you got saved, in the, uh, whose ministry you got saved in, that's, that's what they were talking about. When, when you divide over, over these Things like these secondary theological issues. When you divide over these things, then people don't accurately see the gospel coming out of the church. But instead, what do they see? They see division. And if they see division in us, then what are they going to think about God? That he's divided as well? Do we really want people to see God in that way? And so Paul says there shouldn't be any division over over the church, and I hope you long to hear that. That's what chapter 2 is all about. He says, I hope that you'll receive this spiritual wisdom. But look at chapter 3, verse 1. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I recognize that you don't really want this. That some of you, you, you don't want to hear the truth. You don't want to hear about, about how division is foolish. You don't really care about Christ, but about some label that you would apply to yourself to give you power over somebody else. If you live that way, then you need to recognize that one day you'll stand before God in judgment over that. He mentions that idea of standing before uh, God in judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll mention it again tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so he wants to encourage them to embrace this wisdom that he is telling them. And that wisdom would tell them that we should not divide over these secondary issues. Several years ago, the, the Episcopal Church in America voted to allow the first openly homosexual uh, bishop in as the Bishop of New Hampshire. His name was Eugene Robinson. And one of the 60 bishops that voted to, uh, to let him ascend to that position, even though they knew his lifestyle, he said this. His name's Peter Lee Jones. He said this. He said, if you must make a choice between heresy and division, always choose heresy. Let me read that again. He says, if you must make a choice between heresy and division, always choose heresy. And I would venture to tell you that that's why there's almost nobody showing up for Episcopal Church worship services in America today. Or that if you saw what they did a few weeks ago, uh, they had a worship service where they, they blessed animals, which maybe for some of you that's not such a bad idea. But then they also had uh, those large stilted figures who were walking around representing trees because they're essentially worshiping Mother Nature. That's, that's the Episcopal Church USA. But you don't know where it began? It began here. It began with doubting the authority of God's word. And one of the, what have we said all year? Ideas have what? Consequences. And bad ideas have victims. And there is an entire generation of kids being raised 
in the Episcopal Church who don't believe God's word because they've been told if you have to choose between division and heresy, always choose heresy. That is insanity is what that is. That, that, that is crazy talk, right? And Paul, if he could address the Episcopal Church in America today, if he could address some Baptist churches, if we're to be honest, if he could address the Corinthian church, which he did, this is what he said. And chapters 1 through 3, through three he says, you don't need to be dividing over these things over here. But chapters 5 through 7, he says, but you need to be dividing over these things over here. There is immorality in the church. In chapter 5, there's a man who's having an affair with his, with his stepmother. It's, 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 it's insane that this would, be, this would be something that has happened there in Corinth. But that's exactly what happened. There's this sexual immorality that is in the church. And it's, it's unrepentant sexual uh, immorality. He says, if you're going to divide over anything, if you're going to uh, stand on a hill and die on a hill of any, uh, of any issue, it needs to be something like this. Do you, this immorality that's in the church, it's not even tolerated, uh, it says in the first verse, it's not even tolerated even among the pagans, pagans. And listen, they knew immorality. Paul had seen immorality in his year and a half in Corinth. There, were, there was a temple of Aphrodite on something called the Acrocorinthus. It was the highest point in Corinth. And it was a temple to Aphrodite, who, if you know anything, it's the goddess of love in Greek and Roman mythology. And there were over a thousand temple prostitutes. And you can use your imagination to understand how they would go to worship. They knew that kind of immorality firsthand just by looking at their highest hill. And Paul says, you're allowing this to happen in the church and these people wouldn't even do that. How, how can you have this kind of thing going on in the midst of you? You're, you're, not, you're not people who are defined by your immorality or by your earthly pleasures or by the teachers that, that, who, whose ministry you were saved under. You have been defined by one thing. Look at chapter uh, 6 verse 9. What one thing have you been defined by? He says, you know that these unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not, don't, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Your life should not be defined by the works of the flesh, as we saw in Galatians, but instead by the fruit of the Spirit. He says, you were saved out of that lifestyle, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. This is what your life's defined by. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of who? Follow along with me. Of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You're not defined by the teachers who, who preached to you. You're not defined by immorality and the works of the flesh. You are defined by Christ alone and therefore let this let this judgment happen among you that when there's immorality in the church that you speak to it with truth and with clarity unflinchingly because the gospel is at stake don't let don't let your judgments happen in a courtroom where unbelievers judge believers but you need to recognize that you need to have integrity among you and to live in holiness especially when it comes to covenant marriage. Because believers have been united with Christ. Sexual oneness and covenant marriage is the way to nurture the kind of security that God has designed us for. And because believers have been united to Christ. That means that sexual immorality 
including all kinds of single-person single sexual immorality like pornography, that they join Christ to a prostitute. They join Christ and make him a participant in, in that immorality. And if Jesus is Lord, then these things should not be so in the church. But marriage, chapter 7, should be regarded as holy in your midst. And you should live as you are called in your vocation. You should operate for his glory in these careers, in these uh, paths that God has called you on. That's what he says in verse 20. Uh, chapter 7. Each one should remain in the condition in which, in which he's called. He said, I, and this, this, this hits home for me because uh, I, I was living, uh, before Mandy and I were married, I was living with a, a friend named Brad. And uh, Brad, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a really interesting situation. His, uh, his girlfriend worked with Mandy. He needed a place to live. And so he came to live with me. And, and his girlfriend and Mandy were good friends. Well, then they broke up, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, well, hey, why don't you come to church with me, Brad? Well, literally, like, Brad comes to church one time. And he wakes me up. He, he worked in forestry. He wakes me up really early in the morning. Like, it's still dark outside. And he, we go sit in the den. And he says, Ryan, he says, he says, you invited me to come to church and I've done this. And I've heard this. And, and I, I, I don't have this. I, I don't have this Jesus. I've never experienced what you guys are talking about. And so he prayed to receive Christ right there uh, as I'm still sleepy eyed, you know, in, in the morning. And, uh, and God radically saved Brad that day. It was incredible. And you know what his first question to me was? He said, do I need to get out of forestry? I mean, he was ready. Do I, do I need to leave this calling that I, that I have? Should I, should I walk away and, and, and become and go to seminary like you're going to seminary, Ryan? If that's what I need to do, I'll do it. And I said, well, Brad, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I, I would say until God gives you a conclusive confirmation that that's what you're supposed to do, then you need to stay on the path that God has set before you because just like just surrender to Him. And if you're supposed to change, then you'll change. But that's the question He asked. And that's the question that some people were asking in Paul's day. He was saying, do I need to get out of this? Or do I need to get out of that? Do I need to become this or become that? And, and he says, no, listen, if God saved you where you are, then He wants to use you where you are before He moves you on to someplace else. You hear that? If God saves you where you are, then you need to surrender to Him and let Him use you where you are before you move on to somewhere else. That is your first mission field. And that's what Paul addresses there in chapter 7. Jesus is the Lord of our lives. He transforms our lives. There's no God beside Him. And some of the people that were in uh, Corinth chapter 8, Paul talks about how they were stumbling over this idea of meat offered to idols. And, and just, just quickly to, to summarize what he's talking about here, Paul's talking about some more division. And essentially there was a, the temple to Aphrodite and there were people who would offer sacrifices there and there would be animals that were slaughtered in sacrifice to these Greek and Roman gods. And then they'd take that meat and they would sell it in the meat market. And there were some Jews who would say, that's the most awful thing that I could ever consider is eating meat that had been offered to idols. And then there were some Gentiles who were like, guys, it's just meat. I don't, it's, I don't know what the problem is. They didn't really have this issue with it. 
And so they were, once again, dividing over these things. And Paul looks at them and says, listen, there's no such thing as a little g God. These idols of wood and stone, they're literally just statues. They have no life in them. Don't stumble over that. But you people who see your freedom to eat this meat, you need to recognize that living in community with others, it means that you need to think about others before you think about yourself. If you know someone will stumble because of something that you do, then you shouldn't do it in front of them. You shouldn't parade your liberty around them. In chapter 9, Paul continues to give them an example of this, about how he surrenders his rights. And in verse 19, look at what he says. He says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those who are under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To the outside, those outside the law I became as one outside the law. And he goes on and on. And you, you see that? Last, verse 22, he says, To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. What Paul's talking about here is love. Love's not self-centered. We're going to get to that in a second. Because that's, the main, that's, that's where Paul's headed. Love's not self-centered. Love is not, love is not trying to, 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 to grasp. For what it deserves. And Paul's saying that when it comes to the mission that God has put us on, if you'll just start with love, then it'll change everything. If you'll just start with thinking about others before yourself, it'll change everything. And so let's continue on in chapters 10, 11, and 12. He's talking about these things in the church. And essentially, some of these Christians were coming to church. For self-fulfillment, to have their preferences met. And this was evident because of the conflict that existed there. Some were coming and wanting to parade their spiritual gifts, and they'd come and speak in tongues, and it would have no benefit to anybody else. Right? Uh, imagine if, if during one of our worship services, uh, somebody came down the center aisle, and they're, they're dancing, and they come, and they, they begin to speak in tongues. What would you do? Everybody would be like this. You know, <laughs> because we're not used to that, right? We, we'd be frozen solid. What, what, is there some principle in Scripture that would help, would guide us through that? Ryan, that's why you went to seminary, right? They taught you things like that. Well, in fact, they did. If something like that happened, you know, the first thing that we would ask that person is, first of all, uh, can, can you help us understand what you're saying? Is there an, an interpreter? Some, you know, this is kind of what Paul said. Is there, is there an interpreter to what you said? And if it doesn't benefit the body, once again, don't think about yourself. Think about uh, the others around you. If it doesn't benefit the body, then sit down. That's what Paul says. If, it, if, it, if you're just thinking about yourself and parade, I mean, you're coming and, and breakdancing down the aisle and it's, that, oh, it's just all about me and Jesus here. Well, no, it's not, actually. Can, can we be honest for a second and say when you come into this place that it's not just about you and Jesus? That's what Paul's saying. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. Because when you find yourself in the book of Revelation with the bride of Christ, it's not just you and Jesus. Who is it? It's us and Jesus, right? So when we gather together, it's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's about us and us all being pressed closer and closer to Jesus. 
And that's where this infamous chapter in chapter 13 comes about. We read it during weddings, but can I tell you, it has nothing to do with marriage. Do <laughs> you know what it has to do with? What's been their primary problem the entire time? Division in the church. And so guess what God's will for you folks, not just in your home and not just in your marriages, but guess what God's will is for you as you sit around people in this place? It's to love them. To speak the truth in love, to bear with them in love, to seek after them in love, to rejoice in this common calling that we have. And there, were, there are people in our day and there are people in Paul's day that didn't want, they didn't want to operate in love. And he says, then you are just like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. Nobody wants to hear you. You're like that symphony we talked about in the beginning. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. And if you're going to be the kind of person that just goes around in the name of honesty, right, and just lay, lays it out there for people to hear, and you really don't care about loving them, then Paul would look at them and he would say, close your mouth. It's the best thing that you could do. Go, go get in your prayer closet and you talk to Jesus and say the things to him that you want to say to other people, and we'd all be better off. Because when you pray for somebody, this is just a side note, when you pray for somebody, you can't help but to love them. God transforms you as you pray for somebody. So if you, if you want to come in the church and you want to share truth with somebody else, and you haven't spent time on your knees, like, like devoted time praying and fasting for them, then, then just don't say a word. It would be better off for you not to say a word. That's what Paul's saying. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. And he goes on to chapter 15 where he, he talks about the resurrection, and, which is our ultimate hope. There were some in Corinth who didn't believe in the resurrection. And Paul says, if you don't have a resurrection, then you have no Savior, no hope, and no Christianity. But if you have a resurrection, because Jesus really did re rise from the dead, then there will be a resurrection one day, and you as a church are meant to be a testimony of that resurrection. Look at how he says it in verse 58 of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's saying the resurrection calls us to keep moving forward with the gospel. I brought my glasses up here today. And uh, let me get Landon. He's going to be my guinea pig here. You can come up, come stand with me, Landon. So, Landon, these are my glasses. Are they thick? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're pretty thick. Okay, so so here's so you you see your parents over there. Well, okay, so let's let's put these on. And you look good with those glasses on. How, how do things look, Landon? Uh, I can't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see anything, right? You know why? These glasses were made for me. When, now, when I put them on, if I didn't have my contacts in, I could see everything clearly. But when you put them on, it has the reverse effect, right? Because these aren't your glasses. These glasses were made for me. Okay, have a seat. You did a good job, buddy. You see, you see those glasses? Those are thick glasses. I'm like blind as a bat. What Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians and what Paul's trying to say to us is just simply this. Is that... Just like my optometrist looked deep inside of me and saw exactly what it would take for me to see clearly. So also your God sees deeply inside of you and he has prescribed corrective lenses for you to see life. 
And you can choose to walk through life either looking through the lenses of the gospel or you can choose to go through life without these corrective lenses on. But you wouldn't want me driving without these things. I can promise you that. Because I wouldn't be able to make out whether it was a person in front of me or a box. There are people in our day and age. There are, there are some people who claim the name of Christ in our age. They, they, don't, they don't know if they can discern truth from error. Do you know why? Because they're not looking through the lenses of the gospel. There, there, there are people who don't understand God's will for their life. Do you know why? Because they're not looking through the lenses of the gospel. There are people who think that the church is about them. Do you know why? Because they're not looking through the lenses of the gospel. And sadly, there are people who live their entire lives and they die and they stand before God one day and God may say to them, I never knew you. God may say to them, Jesus died for you. Why don't you do more with that? We'll see that tonight in 2 Corinthians 5. But do you know the, the way to avoid that reality, that which we will all have one day, is to begin by looking through the lenses of the gospel. That's been Paul's entire goal this entire time. And so my question for you is simply this, just in closing. I said it in the beginning. Is that really what you want? Do you want to look through the lenses of the gospel to understand life as God has designed it? Or do you just want to live your life and not have anybody tell you the right way and the wrong way and the truth? You know, sadly, if you want the truth, I would just tell you this is the church for you. But the sad part is, is that if you don't want the truth, I can't help you. I mean, really. Like, I can't help you. Nobody can help you. And so my, my encouragement would be to you is to see Paul has an accurate description of your life and my life right here, even though we're a couple thousand years removed. And if you want what God wants, then start with the gospel. That Jesus, even though we were unworthy and broken, that Jesus moved towards us in His grace. He moved towards us in love, and He gave Himself for us. He gave Himself for us. That means He died on the cross so that we would have an open door to be saved from our sins. But it's not automatic. You don't become a child of God just because your parents followed Christ. You become a child of God by placing your faith and your trust in Christ alone. And that's where the gospel begins for you. Is that you've got to put your faith in Him alone. And as you put your faith in Him alone, then He puts His Spirit inside of you. And He transforms you and makes you new. And as He makes you new, then you see life in a new way. Like we're going to see tonight in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new things have come. Let me tell you, a lot of you in this room today... You're a new creation. I'm a new creation. You wouldn't have known Ryan Johnson when he was a freshman in high school. And you wouldn't have wanted to know him. I promise you. I'm a new creation. But there's some of you in here that you're not. And it's time you got honest with that. And where do you begin? With the gospel. That Jesus died and it's up to you now to put your faith in him. And if that's what you desire to do today, then I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be right down here in the front. And I would love for you to walk down this aisle and for you to just simply say, God, help me. Help me. Help me to recognize the grace that you've given me in my life. 
And let me start with Jesus today. For others, it's an area of your life where you need to put on those corrective lenses of the gospel. And so whatever God's calling you to do today, today, now, is the time for you to respond. And if you need to respond publicly, I'll be right down here to pray with you and to counsel you. Let's pray together.